This podcast contains explicit language. What's really good, everybody? You're listening to the Post Bougie Podcast. I'm Gene Demby, but everybody calls me GD. I'm the founder of Post Bougie. This week, we're talking about school, specifically what it means to a community that loses its school. Later in this episode, I sat down to talk with Eve Ewing, who's a sociologist at Harvard. She wrote this beautiful essay at Seven Scribes about the fight over the last open enrollment public high school in one of Chicago's historically black neighborhoods. But first, my co-host Taryn, who's finally back, she and I sit down with Jelani Cobb. Jelani, if you don't know, is a historian at the University of Connecticut. He's also a staff writer at The New Yorker, which is where he wrote this long feature about the sad demise of his old high school in, in Queens, Jamaica High School. Jamaica was once one of the best high schools in New York City. It was the largest high school in the country, and it was really diverse. And now, it doesn't exist. Here's our conversation with Jelani. Hey, Jelani. Hey. Can you hear me? Yeah. Can you hear me, Jelani? Yes. Hey, man, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, no problem. So um, I loved your piece. It weaved in a lot of big ideas from, like, the Great Migration to, like, the way we think of public education as a way to ameliorate, you know, poverty, like, or a way to, like, get around right. that conversation. Um, was this hard for you to write? Like, I mean, because it is sort of personal. Well, you know, what's funny is that the policy part of it was not difficult to write, but, and neither was the history part. You know, I had to do some research about Queens and, even though I grew up there, there was a lot about the area that I didn't know. But the personal part, it you know, was hard to write. As a matter of fact, they sent it back to me twice because I'd left, you know, these glaring holes in the story. Personal. Like what? Which which holes were the? Which were the glaring holes? Oh, talking about my family, talking about uh, mm-hmm. the way that really that school was central to any possibility of me having a different life outcome than lots of people in my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. One thing that that kind of stuck out to me that is a small thing, but not a small thing, is that your mom like kind of fudged her address so that she could get in a better school district. So there's a conversation about people not caring enough about their kids' educations, right? Or like this kind of sentiment about, particularly about black parents. But then you also have parents that are willing to kind of go out on a limb like your mom did and And commit low level like misdemeanors. (laughs) I think, or in some cases, like you know. Well, now, yeah, now people are being arrested for that. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that was actually, in an earlier version of the story, I had, you know, reference to that because that was the essential point. And, you know, what we look at now is people being sentenced to low-performing schools. And the reason people's schools are low-performing, you know, are complicated. I went into it in the story. But if you're trying to get your child into a better-performing school um, that's not based on geography, and we already know about housing, housing patterns, and how segregation uh, and economic uh, disparities and so on contribute to people winding up in poor school districts in the first place. So if you try to outsmart racism by putting your kid in a different district, then we'll come and arrest you. Right, right. And so, yeah, that was at a point where, you know, maybe people had not come up with that idea yet. <laughs> maybe, you know, I don't doubt that people would have done it and had they been thinking of it at that time. And one of the things that's more notable to me about this is that, you know, a decade, more than a decade, actually, before we saw the really tumultuous upheaval that was associated with busing in in the late 1960s, 1970s, right, in Boston especially, Mm -hmm. those things were happening in Queens, which is kind of an absurd idea. Like, the way we think of now, Queens as being literally the most ethnically diverse place in the United States. 
and one of the most ethnically diverse places in the world in terms of languages spoken per capita. Right. And so one of the things that was shocking about this was that when you began to have black students um, from Bed-Stuy and Brooklyn and Harlem you know, being transferred into mostly white enclaves in Queens, you know, in New York City, Queens was meant to be kind of an internal suburb. Uh, so, you know, for whites who were moving out of the Bronx and moving out of uh, Manhattan, this was meant to be a place where you could go uh, and be in the city but outside of the city. And there was serious resistance to the idea of black students coming to those schools. I mean, it's, it's one of those things, I mean, we talked to Nicole Hannah-Jones uh, about two, two episodes ago about um, her reporting on school segregation uh, for This American Life. And one of the things she brought up was that so many of the places where resistance to school integration was the most pronounced were places in the Northeast. It's not like, you know, it's not, it wasn't the South, right? It wasn't, you know, the places we think of as sort of like bastions of entrenched, like, racial animus. It was places like Boston, but also places in the Northeast, like, uh, like New York City and also, you know, Chicago and places like that. Why do you think that story gets overlooked? Well, I mean, it's interesting. There are a couple things, there are a couple of ways to look at that. First is, you know, this is 2015. It's a centennial of Birth of a Nation. And if you remember that film, you know, what D.W. Griffith was really saying is that white Northerners and white Southerners would find common ground in their mutual disdain for black people, that this would be the ground by which they could heal the rift of the Civil War. And the film was denounced as you know, racist, which it was, but the more uh, notable part of it is that the film was actually very accurate in terms of predicting what's going to happen uh, among white people in the United States, because you know, in the beginning of the 20th century, we started seeing, uh, you know, whites responding uh, to black people who were migrating north in ways that were identical to, you know, the behaviors we've seen in the South. And that is in terms of segregation, it's in terms of um, race riots, it's in terms of uh, trying to uh, exclude uh, and segregate black people within the labor market, mm-hmm. within the same housing patterns, and, and so on. And so if that really has been... Um, a kind of myth of American history that Northerners did not respond to black people with the same sort of racial dynamics that white Southerners did. Um, one of the things that was really clear from the Coles piece was that issues around housing and education feel intractable. And a, something that I gathered from your piece too is that these educa- or these policymakers are trying all these different solutions, throwing all these different solutions at housing and education and in an effort to like alleviate poverty but what it looks like on the ground is what it looks like on the ground is that it's really hand-to-hand combat so i'm wondering like well i, w- I mean i would argue oh, that, that anybody's actually doing anything about housing or school like i don't think that's actually happening but well you know what's interesting about this um is that writing you know this piece made me challenge some of my presumptions and so mm-hmm. um and one i do think that you know the story of racial reform in the United States has been kind of like, uh, you know, fighting a virus, the flu virus, you know, that each year it comes back in some different form. Like you come up with a vaccine and then the next year you have to come up with a different kind of vaccine because the virus has evolved in some kind of way. And that's been the way that racial retrenchment has happened, has worked in this country. Now, in terms of, um, you know, attempts to actually make changes, uh, one of the things that people don't know is that shortly after the Brown decision, Kenneth Clark, uh, who you recall has 
he and his wife Mamie uh, had designed the doll the test, doll test that was integral to right the integral to the Brown decision. So we should explain the doll test, um, right? Within, should, the doll test was the test in which uh, they gave kids a choice of a black doll and a white doll, right. and the, the black children picked white dolls. Right. They thought that the white dolls were smart. They thought the white dolls were virtuous. That they were beautiful. All these things that were associated with whiteness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they used this as a proxy to show the corrosive impact of white supremacy on the thinking of black children, mm-hmm. um, and that was integral to the Brown decision. And so within two weeks of that, a few weeks of that, actually, Kenneth Clark turned his attention to school segregation in New York City, and the New York City Department of Education responded that uh, they did not have segregated schools. They had segregated housing patterns, mm-hmm. and that's a little bit like saying – you know, he didn't die from the stabbing, he died from the bleeding. <laughs> you know, it's it's a distinction without much of a difference. Right. And so when you um, kind of look at the way the housing patterns in New York City were, uh, you know, specifically racialized, at one point about 85% of the housing in Queens, New York, was racially restricted. Uh, and so these things directly feed into why the schools look the way they did. And so one of the things that happened in 2002 was that the Bloomberg administration uh, created a policy wherein uh, young people could go to any high school in the city. And, you know, it was an unpopular policy because what it wound up doing was creating, uh, you know, schools, neighborhood schools that were not desirable because, you know, the best students uh, in a particular neighborhood would be skimmed off and would be going to elite schools on other parts of the city right. and also made neighborhoods have less kind of community buy-in for the school that the children who went to that school may or may not have been in any way connected to that community right, right. and so this is one of the criticisms of it but at the same time uh, one of the more notable things about that policy was that it was an attempt to sidestep the way that residential patterns directly feed into school segregation and so in looking at that, you know, it did not really resolve the problem. New York State has the most segregated schools in the country, actually, according to a UCLA study that was done uh, last mm-hmm. year. And so when you look at the way that, uh, you know, the story has gone over like kind of a half century that I was looking at in this story, it is something that's frustrating because it seems as if each time there's an actual possibility of change, uh, an old recalcitrant, narrow, um, and bigoted kind of racial idea come to the foreground and, and thwarts it. So y- your your essay sort of ends on a note of um, the opportunities at Jamaica High School, which, again, was once one of the, you know, the, the crown jewels of the New York City public ed- education system. The opportunities that were presented you at Jamaica don't exist for a lot of kids anymore. Like, I mean, that that's sort of... Whenever I go back to Philadelphia, you know, where I grew up and where I went to school... Um, charter schools have replaced a lot of the traditional public schools. Um, and a lot of those charter schools, most of those charter schools are not better than public schools, although they might be like a little safer. Um, schools are half empty. This is this sort of this like mass exodus out of the public school system in Philly. And I wonder sort of often if, if I were a parent who was raising a kid in Philadelphia or New York City, how much gymnastics, I mean, you'd, you'd have to fly. Or Detroit. Or Detroit, where Taryn is. Yeah. You'd have to do a lot of maneuvering to get your kid into one of those elite high schools because the schools that are not considered the elite ones have sort of just been left to wither on the vine. And so we've decided that there are a couple thousand kids whose academic futures are worth nurturing. And there's, in New York City, in the case of New York City, almost a million kids who have to fend for themselves. 
Yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting about that. And that was the irony that I saw. So when you see communities that are underserved um, and, you know, schools that are failing, why do they protest the closure of those schools? Mm -hmm. Uh, On its face, it seems contradictory. It seems that these are people who should be cheering the closure of these schools. Because the schools are terrible. But I think that what's actually – right, I think what's actually happening there is that people recognize that there's something beyond simply the closure of a single institution at stake, that it's an indictment of a particular kind of idea and a particular kind of ideal. So if those schools functioned before, if they uh, performed highly before, then there's a belief that they can perform highly again. Uh, And so Jamaica High School, uh, which is a massive building, and I think I've pointed out that in the story, that um, at its peak it had 4,600 students, and it actually had two different shifts, Um, you know, the people who came in early morning and left uh, early afternoon, and then there were people who came in late morning and left late afternoon. And so... Was that uh, that in place when you were there? No, no. When I was there, there was just one shift. Um, How many kids were there when you were there, Jelani? There were about 3,000 when I was there. That's still Um, a lot lot of of kids. kids, (laughs) It's a lot of kids. That's half the size. Like when I was at Hampton, there were six thousand people. So that's about, like that's insane to me to think about. And they were still successful because that's really in- so. They how did were. You, they were. How did you? Na- how did and, they? Nav- how did they orchestrate that? Well, there are two things that happened there. One is that the school had a tremendous reputation for uh, dedicated teachers. Um, you know, there were people who were who were just true believers in the possibilities of education um, who were there. The other is that the school had a long-standing history of economic diversity. Even when the school was all white or um, almost entirely white, uh, it drew from different parts of Queens. Mm-hmm. So uh, one was like you know, kind of working-class white neighborhood. Uh, another area that it drew from was Jamaica Estates, which was an upper-class area where John- Donald Trump grew up. Don't hold that against us. Um, <laughs> And so there were young people who were, and you go back through the old yearbook, you can look uh, geographically and see that there are people who are coming from a diverse array of neighborhoods, at least socioeconomically. Mm-hmm. And then over the course of the 20th century, those neighborhoods diversified um, ethnically uh, to a staggering degree. Um, you know, so that there are populations there uh, that are represented, you know, just huge, a huge array of diversity in, in those communities. Uh, and for a minute, it was possible for all those things to work well together. But the feeling among many teachers is that once it became a kind of gospel and philanthropic circles that a large school was by definition an ineffective and inefficient school, there was incentive to not fund the large schools in a way that they needed to in order to be functional, in order to continue to work well. Uh, and so, whereas the institution I went to was very diverse uh, economically, by the time Jamaica High School was slated for closure, uh, the population was 99% uh, total Black, Latino, and South Asian, uh, very many of whom uh, the South Asian population um, had come with language problems mm-hmm. um, or language difficulties. And so it was 99% uh, students of color and 63% below the poverty line. Uh, and so that, that is really the story. It's not so much that a big school can't function, but a big school that is 
uh, an area of concentrated poverty probably cannot talk to well. When you were in high school, one of the moments you said that a lot of people saw as like a harbinger, or in retrospect, like a harbinger of the decline of Jamaica High School, um, was the shooting of um, Stanley Pacheco um, uh, yes. by Gregory mm-hmm. Evelyn. And you said you knew Gregory Evelyn, uh, the kid who shot him in the, I guess it was the school auditorium? I did. I did. We had swimming class together uh, as freshmen, and the shooting happened in our junior year. And there's still, actually, I spoke to Stanley about this, and, you know, I hadn't had any contact with him, or uh, I didn't know him in school, but mm-hmm. uh, I kind of knew who he was when the incident happened. And I hadn't had any contact with him <clears throat> in the nearly 30 years since the shooting happened. And, and you and, said in the story that Stanley, uh, tracked, Stanley is paralyzed from the from the neck down. He's paralyzed from the neck down as a result of the shooting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's somebody who had kind of an amazing perspective on it, and which I asked him how he managed to be someone who didn't seem to be consumed by bitterness. And he said, you either live or you don't. And I had to decide which I was going to do. And it was a tremendously... Um, kind of humbling way to hear about him talking about processing what happened there. Uh, and for those of us who graduated that year, in 1986 and 1987, uh, we thought that that shooting was a period. Hmm. Um, you know, that ended the point at which Jamaica High School was an academically respectable institution. Oh. It was now a dangerous school and so on. Um and when I talk with teachers, they tended to not, and administrators, they tended to not see it that way. They saw it as a terrible incident that happened, but education continued, and it continued to be a rigorous um, school. Now, of course, with the benefit of hindsight, we now see that school shootings, unfortunately, don't say much about the school right. uh, in terms of its academic standards sure. or uh, its quality of education is just something that is a feature of American life. Mm. At that point, we didn't have as much experience with them. We didn't have enough experience to be able to understand what exactly this meant and what it did not mm-hmm. mean. So I was reading the story. It was really amazing and heart-moving. But the thing that struck me the most was this picture of you in the library with your friends, <laughs> with a lot of hair, sparse facial hair. <laughs> There's a young lady with a mushroom hairstyle. Yes, yeah, the mushroom hairstyle. And- and the cat with the tinted right. uh, sunglasses, the tinted, tinted eyeglasses, yeah. And the, I don't know if that's like a, what's his name? Eric Estrada haircut, <laughs> but it, that's what it kind of looks like. Yeah, yeah. Jelani doing the, you got the Puma sweatsuit or Puma jacket on, yeah. Yeah, so tell us yeah. about young Jelani in high school and what what you were doing when you posed for this picture. <laughs> well, at that point, I think I was under the impression that I was going to be the next great rapper from Queen. <laughs> you know, oh. so there was, you know, it was Run DMC, there was LL Cool J, and in my mind, it was a natural progression. Like, he's going to be oh. Jelani Cobb. I was going to be the next person. Um, and, oh, man. Uh, I think that was a group of students. We were all honor students, mm-hmm. actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had some of our classes together. What I think was interesting about that, um, there's a story that I tell um, young people often, and that is that when I went away to college, you know, I was very concerned. I was the first person in my family to go to college. I didn't know if I was college material. I didn't know if I could do, you know, what was expected of me. And I had to, to write an essay um, for my English class. I was paralyzed with fear. And uh, I wound up writing an essay. It took me two different tries 
uh, I didn't do it in class at all. And I had to go to the professor's office and uh, sit down and write it there. And then at some point it clicked in my brain that the things that I had been doing as a rapper when I was writing raps were the same things I needed to do when I was writing anything else. Like the same principles applied. And okay. um, so that young man was kind of like this is the case with most of us laying the groundwork for things that you'll do later though you just don't know it at the time so wait so that was that was, that you... was my whack on wax off moment oh, so do you have any of these raps like what were your raps about um no i i one i remember all of them and i would recite them. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, Jelani Cobb is the director of the African Studies Institute at the University of Connecticut. He's also a staff writer at The New Yorker. His piece is called The Life and Death of Jamaica High School. You should check it out. Thank you so much for doing this, Jelani. I know you just got off the plane, so I appreciate your time. Thank you. So for more than a month, a bunch of residents on the south side of Chicago have been staging this big hunger strike to try to save Diet High School, which was the last public neighborhood high school in Bronzeville. So at the time we're recording this, those protesters had just announced they were ending their hunger strike because of health concerns. So I spoke to Eve Ewing of Seven Scribes, who wrote a really moving essay there called Phantoms Playing Double Dutch, Why the Fight for Diet is Bigger Than One Chicago High School Closing. Eve taught at one of the elementary schools on the South Side that's closed. She said to her count, there's like 16 high schools that have closed in the last few years. And Eve had been in Chicago over the summer watching the fight over Diet High play out up close. She and I spoke a couple weeks ago while the hunger strike was still going on. I am a sociologist of education, and in particular, I study uh, race and inequality in American education, um, which necessitates studying race and inequality in the rest of society because all those things play out in how American education works. You speak really eloquently about um, what it was like to teach at this, not diet, but the right. school nearby, mm-hmm. about how you felt about its closing. And and I think the thing that was most resonant to me was just like coming from a school system in which, in Philadelphia, in which all these schools have closed and mm-hmm. how you lose a sense of place if you're from those places. Because schools are not just municipal buildings, right? They're like the way you orient yourself to your community. And I was wondering like if you had talked to any of the kids, I mean, went to that elementary school you mm-hmm. taught at since then. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because the story on the south side of school closings uh, is also school consolidation. And mm-hmm. so it means that um, students who are in two different buildings get put together in the same building. And in our school, it was a little bit different because um, the schools had previously been in one building and then split up. And now we're coming back together. And so for a lot of the students, actually, compared to a lot of the school closings, it wasn't as traumatic as... Traumatic? And what what do you mean? um, So, for example, so my dissertation work is about school closings across uh, the Southside community of Bronzeville. Mm -hmm. And... um, Which is, as we should say, a historically black... Right. A historically black, uh, very historically and culturally significant black community um, that was a huge destination point for the Great Migration. um, Really from World War One up until pretty late up until the mid 40s and 50s um and out of which uh huge degrees of segregation also brought huge degrees of cultural production so ida b wells lived in bronzeville Mm. gwendolyn brooks uh famously you know wrote a book called a street in bronzeville richard wright lived in bronzeville um dinah washington sam cook like all it was just this kind of cultural mecca of, of black chicago 
Um, so my research is all about school closings in that community, and that's intentional because it's symbolically important, uh, and a lot of the schools that are closed are also named after symbolically significant uh, African Americans in Chicago. So, like Diet. Like Diet. So Walter Henry Diet was um, a music teacher who taught at a high school in Bronzeville, um, and a lot of his students were people whose names we'd recognize, like Dinah Washington and Nat King Cole. And um, he made a huge influence even on those of his students whose names we'll never know. Sure. He was a really beloved educator in the community, and so they named this high school after him. I think I also mentioned in the Seven Scribes piece, uh, Daniel Hill Williams Elementary is also closed. Um, he was the black doctor that performed the first open-heart surgery. Oh. Um, and founded Provident Hospital, which is a hospital serving um, black people at a time when black people couldn't go to the hospital. Right. <laughs> so, right. um, you know, there's a lot of, of history uh, in, you know, Mahalia Jackson Elementary was one of the schools. Like, if you look at the school closings list, uh, there are also lists of famous black people in Chicago. Anthony Overton, who was a reporter at the Chicago Bee and then the Defender. Um, and one of his writers was actually the person who coined the term Bronzeville, named for the community. So Whoa. it's kind of a, a an irony of history that all of these names are embedded in that. But um, so your question, I think, was how do students perceive it? Mm-hmm. And in the case of the school where I taught, for the students, there what was, was the name of that school. It's called Pershing West. It was Pershing West Middle School, and it was Pershing West. And then now the schools are together. Uh, Pershing East moved into the building that was Pershing West. And for the students, there wasn't necessarily an interruption in the continuity of their experience at that particular closing consolidation. Um, but what happened was that. E- teachers uh, lost their jobs and lost their positions because you don't necessarily need two principals. You don't need two PE teachers and things like that. Um, And so the irony of that was that that school already, you know, when I first came to an event at Diet this summer, um, like one of the first days I was back in Chicago this summer, I said, yeah, I used to teach at Pershing West. And somebody said, you mean Douglas. That school's called Douglas. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm doing emphatic clapping. But <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to blow up the levels on the mic. But um, that's Douglas. And he was really almost like offended that I was using that name for the school because prior to Pershing, um, there was another school that lived that was in that building. Um, that was closed. And so, you know, the history of the South Side has been this kind of tumultuous history of all these buildings um, and schools. And, you know, a school is not just the building in which it is situated, right? It is this conglomeration of people who have come together for this shared sense of purpose. As you call it, an ecosystem. An ecosystem, right. And that's not my, you know, that's not my invention um, to think about schools as, as an ecological system. But And so the, the, also, the other strange thing about these closings is that sometimes – in the south side when the schools are consolidated ostensibly it is like the it's there's a new york times reporter he came to chicago a few weeks ago and he was asking me and he was like can you tell me where i can find some schools that look closed and he wanted basically he wanted like uh you know what those people in detroit call like ruin porn like he wanted something you know that like looked right he wanted something he's like and he kept asking me over and over like but tell me about some schools that look closed and some of them don't look closed because um what has actually happened is that one school has been closed and moved into another building right and but for the people who were in that original school um the things that they say about the loss of the school from an outside perspective you might tell them like but your kids still get to attend a school building that is in some cases just a few blocks away but to them losing the name of the school or losing the principal that they trust or the teacher that they trust or the walk that they're used to um, one of the students I interviewed for my research talks about um, he kind of walked me through what it was like to actually walk by uh, his school every day 
where he had attended and and every he's like every time I go by there I just think about you know people over there um and how we would play football every morning and I know it sounds stupid and it sounds like it's not important but that was a really important thing because you didn't get to play football till you got to eighth grade and now I just think if new kids come into that building they're not going to have that tradition because who's going to teach it to them and I think about that every time I walk by and I look at that tree and I remember everything that happened under that tree mm-hmm. and you know these are the psychic archives that we carry with us right and if you are a person who has the privilege of, you know, we all experience loss as human beings. But if you're a person who has the privilege of the fundamental institutions that shaped you as a human being remaining intact over the course of your life, you get to have that for the rest of your life where you can always walk by that tree. And you're saying for the people in Brownsville, for the kids in Brownsville, that's never, that's not been true for generation of kids. Yeah, exactly. And and for adults as well. I had somebody um, who I interviewed or who I spoke to recently. He's like, he said, all my schools is closed. Mm -hmm. So every school I ever attended is closed. Um, and that's hurtful. Like that doesn't that doesn't feel good, you know. Um, it it coupled with uh, the the demolition of public housing in Chicago, it means that for a lot of folks, they walk down a street and the place where they lived and the place where they went to school and grew and learned as a young person are gone. Yeah. And that's a crazy thing to experience. Yeah, this is what I was just saying to you before we started rolling. Was that you know in Philly, mm-hmm. um, both my elementary school and my middle school are now charter schools. And so you walk, I was walking down the street with Tracy Clayton, shout out to Tracy Clayton, um, <laughs> a couple years ago. Um, and I walked by my elementary school and it was jarring like to see my elementary school have a different name. Mm-hmm. It just, it'd been taken over by this company. Like it, it's, it's just not there anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and none of the people, none of the, the things you sort of use to orient yourself in, you know, exactly. are exist anymore. Yeah. Some of the big pillars in your psychic archives, as you said, mm-hmm. are not there anymore. And you have to sort of, like, oh, what does this mean? The city, the city that I know is not there anymore, right? Yeah, and exactly. And all exactly. Like that. It's really disorienting. Well, and that's part of why, I mean, the thing that you're, the thing that you last said is part of why I chose this as a research topic to work on for right now, because I actually think it is kind of a, a stand-in for the general experience of, of loss that, that black people who grew up in urban centers in America are mm. dealing with right now. And, you know, I'm, I'm here with you in D.C., and I've only been here for a few days. I'm heading out back to Boston tonight. But, you know, I was flipping through whatever the magazine that you get in your hotel room, like the Washingtonian or whatever. And I was just I was looking at it with my mother and I was just like, you know, Detroit, Cleveland, D.C., Chicago, Philly, New York. um, In all of these places, it seems like this idea of a new urbanism is capitalizing on the cultural production and the ideological production and the work, the the hard physical labor and sweat equity um, that black people put in for decades and decades only to have it rendered only symbolic and there's there's nothing left of its materiality, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. That came out way more abstract than I intended. No, 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 absolutely. <laughs> but a concrete example is like... Um, no pun intended. Yeah, no pun intended. Uh, you know... Um, in Bronzeville, a lot of the people that actually lived in that community are gone, but you can take a, a trolley tour um, to roll across the, the neighborhood and, and hear a history of where they once lived and where they once were. And, you know, not that I'm knocking something that could be a, a legitimate source of tourism income for the neighborhood, but, um, you know, I was sitting in a restaurant interviewing somebody for my for my work, and uh, we looked out the window, and I said, how do you feel when you see those trolleys go by? And it's a trolley of, of white people going by, and he said... You know, it makes me, and this is a teenager, he said, it makes me feel like they're saying, like, look at the poor people. Like, yep. basically, like, we're in a zoo 
of dwindling residents, right, um, where the idea of these tours is to capitalize on history when what people want is actually to continue existing, <laughs> right? right? right. Um, and it's like, thank you, for, thank you for acknowledging the history, which is layered and important, but it would be great to have a, a, a popping concert venue here right now mm-hmm. and have some ec- economic investment here right now, have a job right now, an affordable place to live right now. Mm-hmm. Instead of cruising by where Ida B. Wells lived, you know, a million years ago, I would love, a, a, you know, to actually have the residents of the Ida B. Wells home which are now de- demolished have affordable place to live right now right. in the community so it's just like a weird it's a very weird and ironic thing and that's so you know and I think that school closings are um, they can only happen in my opinion they can only happen in black communities in the way that they do because of the fundamental devaluation of black life and the belief that black children are not children and I believe that very strongly because the way in which we understand schooling and schools is not universal in America, but it's pretty darn close because mm-hmm. it's always been part of how we shape our national identity. And so, you know, we the the system of schooling and the way it works has gone more or less unchanged for like the hundred and last hundred and fifty years or so. And most people can relate to and connect with what it means to be attached to your school. And yet and still we make these decisions in a way that doesn't take that attachment into account. And so, um, you know, it follows for me just logically that the only reason that that is the case is because people don't see black children as children and they don't think about the children in these buildings as being like, you know, quote unquote, our children in our buildings. There's not a sense of ownership or empathy. there, Right. Or, or, or just to spread it out, like they don't see those neighborhoods as neighborhoods that are, are sort of thriving. Exactly. Discrete ecosystems. Exactly. And I think when it comes to education, a lot of that is like, um, you know, there's a lot of really jacked up narratives about what it means to be a public school teacher and sure. what a public school looks like. Absolutely. Um, and that's what really was hurtful to me, you know, when this when this was happening in 2013 and um, before and after that. But uh, Chicago is a very, very segregated city, as as you know, and it's very easy for folks that have never been on the south side or the west side to look at a map and see where all the schools are being closed and hear the district say these schools are failing, they're miserable, the kids are trapped here, um, this is, you know, they're suffering. And they can fill in the blanks without ever actually entering the building. And that's based on how we have come to conceptualize public schools and public education in in movies, on TV, right, all that. So um, that's very hurtful. It's a very easy stereotype. Uh, it's, it's, It's funny, just the other day, a bunch of people were tweeting at me about uh, Bach High School. Bach High School is this big Vogue Tech High School in Philadelphia, in South Philly, not far from where I went to. In fact, my, my aunt, who I found out recently, she got kicked out of her Catholic high school <laughs> and sent to Bach because um, she cursed at a nun. Um, and Bach was like the big Vogue, Vogue, uh, Vogue Tech High School in mm-hmm. South Philly. Um, and it's closed. It's been closed for a couple of years now. And now it's like this, it's in turn, it's like a, you know, creative space. People, you know, do yoga there and all kinds of oh, stuff like that. Okay. It's, the neighborhood has changed, right? <laughs> um, and so, you know, for a bunch of people in South Philly, those Bach is like a, it's a, the axis upon which the, mm-hmm. the neighborhood existed. Right, right, um, right. As and a school often is. Absolutely. This right. is how it works. Um, but, you know, those things, there is a sense that, like, these things can just be replaced and people, we right. can just, you know, we can just we can send them somewhere else. In Philly, there's you know there's been this great movement towards charter schools, which is a whole, whole separate conversation we can have. <laughs> yeah, I you really can invite wanna, me back, and we'll talk about that. I really want to talk about urban prep in Chicago because <laughs> I have so many strong feelings about that place. Um, but um, I actually wanted to, to ask you a little bit if you could explain what what is happening with diet because sort of just like quickly run us through the last couple of years. Sure. Um, so. And this is subject to change literally any second by sure. the time, and it's changed a lot in the last since the time when we scheduled this interview right, to right. now. Sure. Um, but 
basically, um, Diet was uh, slated for closure in the 2011-2012 school year, and it was decided that it would be phased out at the end of 2015. So it's like had this slow. It had this slow death. demise, sure. basically, um, where the students that were attending there knew no new classes were added, and they also had to. Um, the way budgetary allocations work is you get per pupil funding, so they were also losing their budget was all out of whack, and they were losing teachers. Um, and then also losing teachers who whose job it was to work with incoming freshmen because there were no more incoming freshmen. Sure. So the school was dwindling. The students that were there were encouraged to leave. Um, and what ended up happening is that in the final year, there were 12 students that remained and then one who had... 12 tra- students? 12 seniors, yes. So how many, how many kids were in that? Um, that I couldn't tell you okay. off the top of my head, but, um, but a 12, lot more than 12. <laughs> but there's 12 kids. Yes, a lot more than 12. So are those kids just like, are they just like just super obstinate? <laughs> or like, what well, they mean? were like, this is my school. Sure. Like, you're not going to kick me out of my school. You're not going to pressure me to leave my school. I will graduate from this school because it's my school. And then a 13th student who had transferred out because she was told that she had to was unhappy at her new school found out she didn't have to transfer out and transferred back wow. so that there are 13 kids what kind of resources does the school have for 13 kids um that was a big struggle so the 13 kids that were there um they had to take things like art online they had to take health in lieu of getting pe online spanish other things um and the community really banded together to try to bring them as many resources as they could so one of the teachers wrote a grant to get them a band program so that they could all basically like do a school of rock type situation. and like just play instruments together Um, the community banded together for them to have a prom for them to have a luncheon and um, you know a student that I interviewed he's like he said I know this is embarrassing to say but he's like I never got to be a cool senior and like that meant so much to him he never got to have the experience of students under him right like earning his way to Mm -hmm. the top and having to look at him like he's cool he's like I never (laughs) got to be a cool senior like that I'll never get that back right Mm -hmm. And um, so at the end, right before the school was supposed to close, um, a community group submitted a proposal for the school to be reopened. Um, The CEO at the time, Barbara Bird Bennett, um, who has now is no longer the CEO, which is what we call the superintendent in Chicago. Yeah, that's what that's right. Which that's a separate commentary on the corporatization of public education. That's that's how it works in Philly too. Is the CEO? (laughs) Is the CEO, and she's no longer the CEO because she's under federal investigation for a twenty million dollar no bid contract, Mm. and so she resigned in April. So that's a whole other conversation about the layers of corruption in the district. But um, be that as it may, so she said, well, we can't just take a proposal for you. We'll we'll put out an RFP and anyone who wants to submit a proposal can. RFP. A request for proposal. Sure. So anyone who wants to submit a proposal can. Um, and so fast forward, the same group got a broader coalition together. They call themselves the Coalition to Revitalize Diet. And they put together this huge proposal. Um, two other groups put together proposals as well. And the district said that they were going to vote um, they were going to have a final hearing to figure this out on August 10th, and then they were going to vote at the subsequent board meeting. Um, up until August 10th, people were harassing the district, saying, can you tell us a time and a location for the meeting? Sure. They never did. The girl was out here trying to keep my day. I was like, I got to be somewhere August 10th. <laughs> right. I don't know where, but I'm going to keep the day open. Um, on August 7th, so that was a Monday, Friday afternoon, August 7th, they canceled the meeting. And they said, well, we need more time to make Cancel the meeting, the vote on the proposal. Yes, mm-hmm. completely canceled it. Um, and so they put out a press release and canceled it at the, near the end of the day Friday. So at that point, uh, a group of parents, community members, and allies um, said, obviously, there's no transparency in this process. There's no faith in this process. And so we're done playing with you, and we're going to go on the hunger strike. Okay. 
And so since then, they have and been. And that's been the hashtag, the save diet. Exactly. Save diet, fight for diet. So even before that, that was the hashtag sure. for them even trying to get a meeting on the books to have the proposal considered. So it's an interesting thing because outwardly, the district will say, we put out a request for these proposals and there's a process in place. But actually, um, that process is only in place because people in the community agitated in the first instance mm. to say, we want the school reopened. So if that had never happened, you know, uh, this is a broader thing that's going on in terms of black activism right now is that people are like, well, you know, you need to not disrespect yourself in public or right. make a spectacle or make a mess. You need to be polite. You need to be patient. But the school would just be closed now. Like had had folks not gotten arrested, like uh, engaged in civil disobedience, showed up, protested, made a fuss, there wouldn't even have been a proposal process in the first place. And so then to have that process canceled midstream or t- turned up or, you know, t- turned around midstream, they were basically like, forget this. So um, since then, a lot of other things have happened. Um, there, Chicago had its first budget hearings in a while last mm-hmm. week. Mayor Daley used to have these budget hearings several times a year, and Rahm Emanuel has not had one since he was elected in 2011. Um, and so he had his first budget meetings last week. And if you look at the photos from the hashtag is shy budget hearing 2016, I believe, or shy budget meeting 2016. In the photos, it looks like a precursor to a race riot because basically, <laughs> like, people are really mad at Rahm Emanuel. And the, the photos are him standing in the midst of black people yelling at him about all kinds of things, not only diet, because the degree of disenfranchisement and disinvestment in the black communities and, and, and also Latino communities in Chicago has been um, egregious. Mm. And so also when you don't have a meeting or any kind of public process for a long time, people come out and act crazy. So basically like everyone turned up to the first meeting. Second meeting was even more turned up and basically Rahm Emanuel left in the middle of the meeting um, and went behind a curtain and then they announced that the meeting was canceled and he went home. Wow. And he so like... he was like, I'm out. Like right. y'all out here yelling at me. I can't deal with this. So he, he, he dipped. Um, and, uh, the next morning there was a sit-in at city hall, um, for in favor of diet. And that was really inspiring to me because I was back in Boston at that point. Um, and I, you know, I've been following this for a while, for about a year and a half. And, um, you know, I've gone to a lot of events and talked to a lot of people about it and there wasn't necessarily a lot of attention or people knowing about diet. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. And folks who knew, knew, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't something that was getting a lot of attention. And uh, when I saw that city hall sit in, I saw the photos. It was a ton of people like sitting on the ground in peaceful protests who were really like, this is unacceptable. And this is a referendum on how we run schools in this city and how we run the city. It's not just about this school anymore. Um, And so then that day, a group of politicians came out with Rahm Emanuel in the front and said, we're going to reopen diet um, and we're going to reopen it as an open enrollment arts high school, which. um, How do you have an open enrollment arts high school? That's a question. Um, another question. So open enrollment. If, meaning, if you, yeah, open, enro- open enrollment just means that if you li- you can anyone can go. Right? Exactly, anyone, anyone who lives in the community in the can right. go. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's ours high school, presumably there's auditions or some sort of you need to have. It's so, it has to be sort of selective. Right. Unclear. And also that there would be like an innovation lab attached to it. Right. Now, so this is where it gets really interesting. It was already interesting and now it's really interesting because there's two ways to look at this. One is it's a victory. The school's reopened. It's not reopened as a charter or contract school. It's an open enrollment high school. That's what folks wanted. Wow. How amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in terms of the outcome, there's one way of looking at it as a victory. There's another way of looking at it as a huge insult because 
Um, first of all, the folks who'd been protesting were not allowed inside CPS for the announcement. They were made to wait outside, um, and they were not allowed to attend the press conference. Secondly, in terms of transparency, it's a thing that's happening to them. It's not a, it's like right, it's happening like, to them from outside, outside and you got to hear. Them. Yeah, and secondly, I you know once again, none of this would have happened without their, their effort. Agitation, yeah, yeah. And I, to me perhaps most significantly is in terms of a process for how we want to make decisions and about governance and school governance, it's like a massive failure because you can't have a request for proposals only to take the proposals, cancel the meeting where you were supposed to decide on the proposals, and then make an announcement that has nothing to do or is like a weird conglomerate of all the proposals uh, as a unilateral decision without, right? So like it's, in terms of a democratic process, it's a massive, terrible failure. Mm -hmm. um, and is kind of endemic of all the things that are wrong with Chicago public schools just in terms of, um, again, kind of like autocratic decision-making. I right. mean, this is what people always talk about. They want community schools. They want people involved in the schools. And here you have this instance of all these people in this, in this neighborhood banding together to save the school. Exactly. Um, and sort of being rebuffed or not really rebuffed. Or is this like a very complicated... It's complicated. Yeah. And, you know, again, um, it's Monday. By the time this airs, all these things could, you be know, could yeah. be different. And, um, you know, for me, uh, the folks that are there are people that have been very kind and very welcoming to me as a participant and as an observer and who are there because they care for their children and because they care for the children of other people and because they care for my children that aren't born yet, mm -hmm. right? Like, that's what I try to keep in mind is, like, folks are not doing this for their own kids. They're doing this for the kids of the city. Um, and to me, I, I don't mean this in a hyperbolic way at all. Every single day that I'm a away from Chicago, I am very fearful for the, for the health of the folks that are there. Um, and I think that one thing that doesn't always come through in the photos or the, the articles or things like that is that people are really in a literal way putting their lives on the line in a way that is very scary and which is extremely intentional because they actually believe that much in what they're doing. Um, and I think that that is um, really amazing and something that uh, is a testament to how far we have come um, and how far we have not come in terms of how, how the city works. And, you know, as I've said, it, it's my home and I, I just want a place uh, where my kids can go to school and, and have a, uh, an appropriate and free and available education where other kids can have the same thing. And sometimes I really question whether that's ever going to be possible. So it's uh, very disheartening, but also very encouraging that, that people like this are willing to put their lives out there. Our theme music is Nick's Groove by The Foreign Exchange. Shout out to our podcast producers, Channing Kennedy and John Ketchum. Follow Post Bougie on Twitter at P-O-S-T-B-O-U-R-G-I-E and like us on Facebook. <laughs>